You've seen the headlines, bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, we took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed in this century. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash The Economist to get started. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. From London, I'm Jason Palmer. And in New York, I'm John Fastman. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. A court in Singapore refused last month to strike down colonial-era legislation criminalizing sex between men saying it can stay because it's never enforced. Our correspondent explains the societal reasons behind keeping a law that will be ignored. And what happens when a lower-middle-income country decides to ban the import of used cars more than one year old? People bring in older cars illegally, of course. Welcome to the world of the Chutero. But first. At peace talks in Turkey yesterday, the Russian army announced it's moving troops away from the Ukrainian capital, Kiev, and the northern city of Chernihiv. Kremlin officials said it's a show of good faith. But Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky thinks the reasons behind the move are far less noble. In a message last night, he said we see no reason to trust Russia's motives, that only a concrete result was to be believed. America reported seeing Russian troops move away from Kiev, but President Joe Biden was skeptical too. We'll see. I don't read anything into it until I see what their actions are. We'll see if they follow through on what they're suggesting. There are negotiations. There are concerns that the evident pullback may represent a diversionary tactic. Either way, it's clear that Russia's plan on the ground is changing. Last Friday, Russia's defense ministry held a briefing. It was a month or so into their war in Ukraine. And what they said was the first phase of the war was finished and it had been a big success. They said they never wanted to take Kiev, the capital of Ukraine, in the first place. They had only attacked it to stop Ukraine from reinforcing the rest of the country. And they insisted, against all the evidence, that their main aim was liberating Donbass, which is this chunk of the country in the east, neighboring Russia. Shashank Joshi is our defense editor. What we've heard since then from Russia's deputy defense minister yesterday is that the Russian military is reducing its activity in the north of the country around Kiev. But that assertion that Russia never wanted to take Kiev, that is in conflict with what certainly everyone was saying before the war started. The idea that Russia never wanted Kiev is nonsense on stilts, Jason. Western officials had sight of Russian war plans for months, and they said clearly that the intention was to capture the capital and to occupy the country. And Russian actions in the first days of the war showed that to be the case. Vladimir Putin, Russia's president, said, we will seek to demilitarize 
and denazify Ukraine. It was pretty clear he wanted to take over the country. We saw military actions like the attempted seizure of Hostomel Airport around Kiev. We saw two big advances on the capital from the northwest and the northeast. And in fact, a couple of days after the invasion, RIA Novosti, which is a state-run Russian news agency, even accidentally published a piece that boasted Ukraine has returned to Russia. In other words, it was very clear Russia's aim was always regime change. So if that had been the aim, why the pivot now? In particular, this pointed reduction of hostilities around Kiev. Well, Russia's pivoting largely because the first phase of the war has been a complete failure. It's done pretty well in the south from Crimea, bursting out, and it's nearly taken Mariupol, the port city. But at the end of the day, its advances on Kiev have been complete failures. They stalled in the face of Ukrainian resistance, disrupted supply lines, not enough manpower, incredibly heavy casualties. NATO thinks perhaps 15,000 Russians may have died in the war already. And for all of this effort, for all of these costs, what have they got for it? They've taken one major city, Kherson, and Russian control there looks pretty shaky to me. They failed to take Ukrainian cities. They failed to topple Zelensky. And now they're hurriedly changing strategy in response. And I think there's some clear evidence that things are changing on the ground. How, though? How are things changing on the ground? Well, U.S. officials are saying that Russia is beginning to withdraw some of its forces from around Kiev, and they're calling it a major shift in strategy. In addition to that, we're also seeing Russian troops withdraw from some key areas, for example, Hostomel Airport around the capital. And other Russian forces outside the capital are digging in. They're establishing defensive positions, which suggests they're not really going to attempt to assault the capital anymore. And there's also some evidence that the Russian armed forces are blowing up bridges, which may, again, indicate that they're trying to stop the Ukrainians moving around rather than trying to enable their own movement. And at the same time, the Russians are prioritizing their efforts in Donbass, which is where lots of the Ukrainian regular army was before the war began. They're trying to encircle those Ukrainian troops with a pincer movement, that's coming from the city of Kharkiv and that's coming northward from Crimea, approaching towards Zaporizhia, which is the site of this nuclear power plant we've been hearing so much about. The idea is to encircle the Ukrainian forces in Donbass, cut them off and stop them retreating west of the Dnieper River and escaping. And is that working? Will that work? It's very early to say, Jason. It's not as if they've shown huge signs of being able to conduct blitzkrieg operations and smash their way through in a matter of days, there is some evidence that they're making more gains there than they are in any other part of the country. But the furthest extent of their northern advance is still some way from Dnipro, which is this vital central city that controls a number of key crossing points on the Dnieper River. I think one of the key things is how quickly they can take Mariupol, which is, of course, this besieged city on the Sea of Azov. It's eventually going to fall, I think. That would free up Russian forces to move north, and it could aid their advance. But we don't know whether Russia would then suffer the same problems with its logistics, its ammunition, its fuel, its supplies that they have done in so many other parts of the country. So it's too early to say, but I think there is a real risk to Ukrainian forces there. So the effort seems to be focused then on the Donbass, this, this region that has been uh, messy, contested, uh, riven by war since 2014. What would it mean for Russia, for Ukraine, if the Russians were to succeed in fully capturing it? Well, the argument is, I suppose, that Russia could claim it as a kind of consolation prize. 
saying this is what we wanted to do all along. Don't forget, Jason, they recognized the two so-called people's republics in Donbass just before this latest war began, which were these two Russian proxy states that they propped up after their invasion in 2014. They could perhaps use them as bargaining chips, saying, well, if you want these back, then you have to give us all these other concessions. Or they could simply absorb them into Russia and say, this is a big success to Moscow. But the problem with all of that is that while they were able to grab big chunks of Ukraine in 2014 and they faced some sanctions, it could all be done at a pretty reasonable economic and military price. Now, if they want to hang on to Donbass in this way, if that's their end game, they're still going to find that their economy is being strangled by sanctions, that Western countries are not going to lift those sanctions until they give up all their wartime territorial gains, and they're going to find that the Ukrainian army is constantly mounting counterattacks, inflicting continued casualties on those Russian forces. It doesn't look like a very stable outcome to me for Russia. Well, stable or not, would that satisfy either side here? Would Russia be content with that as a consolation prize to secure that region? Would Ukraine be content for the end of war if it meant giving up that region? What we've heard from Volodymyr Zelensky is that he's open to territorial compromises. But I think we have to draw a distinction between the land that Russia and its proxies took in 2014, which is the Crimean Peninsula, which was annexed to Russia, and parts of the Donbass, which was held by Russian proxies, and the land that has been taken by Russia in the past month. It seems to me that would be a much more difficult thing for Zelensky to countenance giving up. He himself has said that those kind of compromises would take a referendum, but it's not clear whether the Ukrainian people would accept that. It seems to me that those territorial questions are going to be incredibly difficult sticking points. Also for Russia, I do wonder whether this is going to be something tolerable. The Russian economy could shrink by a fifth this year. It could be set back by 20 years because of Western sanctions. Is it really going to be happy with a scenario in which it has a few hundred square kilometers of territory, in which it claims to have struck uh, a blow against the Nazis in Ukraine, but its economy is impoverished and it's suffering continued brain drain? Because a situation in which it, it hangs on to any of its wartime gains is not a scenario in which we are going to see a stable peace agreement. Shashank, thanks very much for your time. Thanks for having me as always, Jason. You've seen the headlines. Bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, we took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed in this century. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash The Economist to get started. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds. Something like 80 countries have legislation that bans sex between men. Almost half of those laws trace their origins to one from the British colonial era that outlawed carnal intercourse against the order of nature. From the mid-20th century, attitudes to homosexuality across the Western world began to change quickly. Homosexual behavior 
between adult consenting males in private should no longer be a criminal offence. After watching the three and a half hour Commons debate, hundreds of gay campaigners heard the result they'd hoped for. Für mich ist die Ehe im Grundgesetz die Ehe von Mann und Frau und deshalb habe ich heute auch diesem Gesetzentwurf nicht zugestimmt. 30 countries around the world now recognize same-sex marriages. Yet some version of that archaic anti-gay law persists even today in former British colonies, including Jamaica, Nigeria and also Malaysia, which enforces it harshly. It's still on the books in Singapore, the city-state at just the tip of the Malaysian peninsula. But attitudes there seem a little more accepting. My name is Carmelinda White. I'm 30 years old this year. I am an out bisexual man living in central Singapore. I truly think that for anyone who is queer, there is a community here in Singapore that is welcoming and accepting of who you are. So you might have thought that it wouldn't be too hard to get anti-gay legislation struck down. Well, there aren't any laws in Singapore that prevent gay and bisexual men from expressing their sexuality per se. Charlie McCann is The Economist's Singapore correspondent. But Singapore does have a law that criminalizes, quote-unquote, gross indecency between men specifically, and that's been interpreted to refer to sexual intercourse. This law is known as 377A. And how is that law actually enforced? Well, it hasn't actually been enforced since at least 2007, which was the last time that Parliament debated this law. And so in that parliamentary debate, the Prime Minister, Lee Sin Lung, said that the law would remain on the books, but it wouldn't be, as he put it, proactively enforced. And that's because he thinks it's necessary to strike this balance between accepting gay men, who, as he put it, are kith and kin, but also respecting society's traditional mores. And about a decade later, the Attorney General weighed into this, saying that he did not believe it was in the public interest to prosecute consenting men who were engaging in sexual acts in private. And the government has clarified that homosexual people have a place in their country in Singapore and that they should be protected from discrimination. Yet despite all this... Last month, the Court of Appeal dismissed a challenge brought by three gay rights activists against 377A. So if the law isn't enforced and and kind of can't be, then why did the court dismiss this challenge at all? Well, the argument is because the government doesn't enforce the law and therefore the plaintiff's constitutional rights aren't being violated and they have no standing. But I think the court is basically trying not to rock the boat. Politicians don't want to go anywhere near this law. Homosexuality is still a divisive issue in Singapore. There is an influential lobby of evangelical Christians who like 377A and want it to remain on the books. And so politicians have no incentive to address this issue, to come down on it one way or another, because it would likely lose them votes. That ambiguity really unnerves Kyle. I'm very worried that this law is still in the books. And let me tell you why. This law is a lightning rod for various groups to coalesce. The law sets the tone for what is considered to be acceptable or not acceptable in Singapore. So Kyle is worried that religious groups and anti-gay groups 
can use the law to justify discrimination against gay people. And that concern is shared by a lot of different LGBT plus groups and individuals. Yu Sheng Chiu is a gay man who was born in, and lives in Singapore. So my fear of 377A is not because having sex is a crime for me. I mean, it's annoying, but that is not the reason why I'm scared of it. The reason is because 377A is used to legitimize state-sanctioned discrimination of LGBT folks in Singapore. Yu Sheng argues that by keeping the law on the books, it will reinforce some of these policies that hold LGBT people down in Singapore. So there's an overwhelming amount of state censorship, for example. TV shows are only allowed to show negative portrayals of queer people. And we have public housing rules that are set by the state. So for some context, about 80% of Singaporeans here live in public houses. And the only people below 35 who can buy public houses have to be married couples. And because gay people cannot get married, naturally we can't get access to these public houses until we are 35 or beyond. Look, we should stress that we can't draw a direct line between that law and these discriminatory policies. But LGBT groups argue that 377A creates a climate in which this kind of discrimination is acceptable. And it remains the, the, the letter of the law in a, in a place that has a proud tradition of the rule of law. Yeah, that's the irony. The Singapore government loves to celebrate its commitment to the rule of law. And yet here we have a law that is just being ignored, basically. And it has consequences for the gay community. As many LGBT activists say, keeping the law on the books means that gay men will continue to be labeled as criminals and that the law perpetuates discrimination and violence against them. And the thing is, you know, as the court acknowledged, there's nothing to stop the government from deciding to start imposing the law once again. That ambiguity is really unnerving to the gay community. But what about that that ambiguity, though? What what chance that the the law might be enforced a, again in the future? The law is not going to be enforced in the short term because the court has basically told the government it can carry on pretending that law doesn't exist. What it's done is basically the court has given legal weight to the attorney general's position that it's not in the public interest to enforce this law. So in the short term this is a good thing for the gay community. And one of the plaintiffs even described it as a partial but significant victory for the LGBT community. The trouble is that, as the court said, the government can decide at any time to start enforcing the law once again. I don't think the government has any incentive to change the law because this is a divisive issue and it doesn't want to go anywhere near it. Nevertheless, there are promising signs that attitudes in Singapore are changing. Survey data shows that a majority of young people believe that gay people should have the right to get married. And that does give Kyle and Yusheng hope for the future of their country. I think on the balance of things, I'm still hopeful. Because the younger generation of people are a lot more accepting of LGBT people. Essentially, they care a lot less. It's just like, you're queer, so what? Right? Which... I mean, that's how things should be. Charlie, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you, Jason. 
In Bolivia, love for used cars known as chutos has inspired its own genre of music called chuto cumbia. Simon Latore, a Bolivian musician, had a viral hit on his hand with this song, Chutero Yo Soy, which means I am a chutero. Every Sunday, the main square in the sleepy town of Chayapata comes alive. It's filled with old Japanese cars and people hustling to buy and sell them. The only problem? Well, despite the popularity in musical tributes, chutos are illegal. A chuto is a contraband car that's been smuggled into Bolivia from Chile. Thomas Graham writes for The Economist. That process of getting them across the border involves crossing the Andes, crossing the desert, and maybe crossing the salt flats as well, depending on the route. And what condition are the cars in when they cross that arduous path? What do they look like? What, what type of cars are they? They're generally quite good cars. Maybe a Japanese 4x4, four 4, 6 to 7 years old would be the average one. Because they have to be good enough to survive the journey. You can't bring over a, a, a total piece of junk because these aren't roads. It's not like a smooth ride on the German autobahn. So they're often in pretty good shape when they start the journey. Less good shape afterwards. So there's a whole um, sort of industry there of mechanics who specifically work on tuning up these cars that have survived the journey. How did the market for Chutos develop? These cars have been around for 20, 30 years, more. But the market got a big boost in the mid-2000s when the Bolivian state started to impose restrictions on the second-hand cars that could be imported. So it started in 2008 with a restriction of five years. Now it's illegal to import a used car older than one year old. Uh, and it's been that way since 2016. People need affordable cars. So you've got more people looking to buy maybe their first car. You know, a fifteen dollars or $20,000 vehicle is not an option for a lot of these people. A chuto is, is the way they can get it, you know, often for a half, even a third of the price of what an equivalent legal car would cost. And how many of them come in a year? Most people say that it's around... 25,000 a year. To put that in context, 60,000 cars come in legally. So we're, we're really saying one in every three cars that comes into Bolivia is a chuto, is a contraband car. And, you know, the uh, a whole culture has really developed around these cars and the business on both sides. And what is that culture like? It's intense in certain places. So, for example, Chayapata, which is the biggest contraband car fair in Bolivia, and it's where I went for the reporting on this piece, this is a, a sort of unremarkable town, which is basically dedicated to the business. Tap any random person on the shoulder there and ask them what they do, if they were honest. They would say they're involved in some way or another. And that's not just bringing the cars over, it's the mechanics who fix them, it's people who offer uh, fake license plates and fake papers. Uh, they'd often offer to, to clone a car for you. It's a pretty open thing. Equally, these cars are also sold uh, all over the internet. If you go on Facebook, type in chutos, you find a ton of groups that are selling them openly, people offering to deliver them to your house. So there's no real fear of being caught or, or punished for this. And in terms of who, these, who the chuteros are, they are um, family clans, generally. When I was there in Jayabata, it was often a father and a couple of sons who were trying to sell the cars that they'd brought in. But they're also part of much larger networks. And you know, there's some suggestion that criminal bands are involved. And if this is illegal and attracts this sort of criminal element, why aren't authorities cracking down on the chuto market? 
the authorities definitely know about it. The question is whether they are unable or unwilling to crack down. I think on the unwilling side of things, I should say now that the informal economy in Bolivia is vast. And from the governing masses point of view, it draws a lot of support from sectors in this informal economy. Perhaps it doesn't want to antagonize them with restrictions. But I would also say that even if the state wanted to crack down, it might not be able to. The border is long. The state doesn't have great capacity to enforce restrictions. And it's also shot through with corruption at the lower levels. Chuteros that I spoke to told me that, you know, sometimes they do get caught when they're bringing these vehicles over the border. But generally, they can bribe their way past the patrols, $100 or $200 per vehicle, depending on the car. So it might be that the state can't control the trade because on some level it is implicated in it. So which way do you expect this to go? Do you think the government will crack down? Or do you think it might be pressured into some sort of, if, if not legalization, then at least passing some sort of amnesty for Chuteros? I don't think the situation will change. But in terms of another amnesty, I'm not sure. There have been two in the past. One under President Banza, one under Evo Morales, and that's regularized 100,000 Chutos. Whether they can pressure the government into doing something really depends on their capacity to mobilize. Uh, because this government has shown on a few occasions that if you can get a lot of people out on the streets, if you can blockade key roads, it might fold to your demands. Thomas, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Let us know what you think of the show. You can get in touch at podcasts at economist.com. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. We'll see you back here tomorrow. seen the headlines bonds are making a comeback but if you've ever tried to invest in bonds you know what a clunky complicated broken experience it can be that's why at public we took fixed income and fixed it now you can find evaluate and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed in this century add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate treasury and municipal bonds go to public.com forward slash the economist to get started full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds. Bonds.